Support for CJSW's podcasts comes from listeners just like you. Visit cjsw.com slash donate and join thousands of people who help make independent campus and community radio a reality for the city of Calgary and beyond. CJSW 90.9 FM, radio in color. And so I'm saying that that white innocence and beautiful liberal investment in interrogating your own privilege has got to be deepened and asking questions about innocence and the degree to which we, you as white people, have not been encouraged to think about your whiteness, forced to come to grips with it, and ask the question what you will do in the face of the knowledge you possess to try to challenge an unjust system. That's Michael Eric Dyson, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Michael Eric Dyson on white privilege. White privilege, what's that? Some people have choices and advantages simply because of the color of their skin. Many whites are unaware of it, or if they are, are quick to say, hey, I'm cool and beyond that. Right. Peggy McIntosh, a noted women's studies scholar, in her classic essay, White Privilege, Unpacking the Invisible Backpack, wrote, I was taught to see racism only in individual acts of meanness, not in invisible systems conferring dominance on my group. I have come to see white privilege as an invisible package of unearned assets that I can count on cashing in each day but about which I was meant to remain oblivious. White privilege is like an invisible weightless knapsack of special provisions, maps, passports, code books, visas, clothes, tools, and blank checks. To talk about white privilege is Michael Eric Dyson. He's university professor of sociology at Georgetown. A dynamic speaker, he lectures widely Among his many books are April 4th, 1968, The Black Presidency, and Tears We Cannot Stop. He spoke at Town Hall in Seattle in 2017. And now, Michael Eric Dyson. You know, many white brothers and sisters have not heard the unexpurgated, the unabridged dictionary of black grief, have not heard the thesaurus of of agony and trauma that we endure and the words that spill out of us because the pain is so is so powerful is so palpable and I wanted to share that in a way and to do it in a jeremiad in a sermon where I get to call my congregation beloved because I've preached hundreds and thousands of sermons um, and they're often difficult to deliver and even more difficult to hear if they're done right. If I ain't on your toes or in your pew, then I'm not really in your mind and I'm not really in the spirit. So in that sense, I wanted to deliver a sermon, not condescendingly, not speaking ex cathedra as if God, God's self spoke through me, though one aspires to a bit of that revelation grasping after the hymn of the garment of truth. But I wanted to really expose myself and admit that it is hard, it is difficult to grapple with whiteness because whiteness has been a force that has been humiliating and horrifying and haunting and to people of color and to white brothers and sisters themselves. And so I wanted to to find a form where I could say that and a genre that allowed me to articulate that and to get down there in the stench, the muck and mire, and then work my way out of it by sharing my insight with whoever would listen. So um, I I knew that it would be hard for white brothers and sisters to get that, that it is at once a fiction It's invented. People are not born with a genetic imprint about whiteness or black or red or yellow or native versus exotic or foreign. We're not born with that imprinted in our blood or brains or our bodies, though they bear the imprint of our 
particular discursive and cultural frameworks. Race depends upon the society in which it exists to determine its meaning. And I wanted to say it's not in your genes. It is not coded. It is created. Now, in the academy, I said I didn't want to use any jargon, but we talk about social construction of race. Now, people hear that and they think, aha, I got you there. You, you people of color are always obsessed with race, but it's a social construct. Therefore, you can deconstruct it. You know, you can, but it's easier said than done. Right? Cab passing you by. Cab, sir. It's a projection of your unconscious. It's a ruinous reach of your imagination because race is nevertheless powerful and potent and has force and function and energy and facticity to the degree that we consent to it, that we believe in it and invest in it. As James Baldwin said, it's a, it is a fiction, the fiction of our collective identity. And many white brothers and sisters think of themselves, I'm, I'm Irish or Polish or Italian or Norwegian or wherever they might emerge from. But when we come to America, the crucible of race pulverizes whiteness into something that is real, though a fictional projection drawn from those various ethnicities. And so uh, somebody was saying, well, you know, we don't even, I've never thought about myself as white, so I'm not sure that works. I said, you make him a point. <laughs> because when you're white, you don't have to think about whiteness, right? When you're white, one of the privileges is not to know you're white and to be deeply ensconced in an innocence that will not melt away, that refuses to give way to um, a broader conception of more complicated and nuanced humanity and identity. And it is interesting that, you know, in the aftermath of this last election, a lot of people are saying, well, we've got to get rid of identity politics. Even... Our dear friend Bernie Sanders said, look, it's easier to talk about racism or sexism than it is to talk about economic inequality and Goldman and Sachs. And I'm like, uh, slow down, Mace, you're killing them. <laughs> Not sure that's true, right? And isn't it interesting that people excoriate Hillary Clinton and what she failed to do and how she failed to do it while she was a victim of sexism so deep and profound, we couldn't even name it, right? <clears throat> well, she's not interesting. She ain't trying to be your girlfriend, <laughs> right? We ain't trying to run a Messiah. This ain't Jesus on the throne, right? These are human beings, but women don't get a chance to be flawed like men, right? John Boehner cries. It is the manifestation of a profound masculinity that's vulnerable. She cries, there's no crying in baseball, right? So Hillary Clinton is said to have ignored the white working class. So in the name of transcending identity politics, we must pay attention to the white working class. Isn't it interesting that whiteness gets read as universal and as human and therefore American. Because there's a black working class and a brown working class and a yellow and a red working class. There are native peoples on so-called plots of land, reservations where they occupy a status beneath any other human being in this nation rendered invisible. And so <clears throat> when we think about um, the reality that whiteness gets obliterated, eviscerated, disappeared. And many white brothers and sisters get mad. Why do you people keep talking about race as if we are inventing it? And we ain't made the game, we just revealing it. Don't hate the player. That game was created by somebody else. And so it's interesting to me that we're now 
uh, chided for identity politics, and even from the left, with my dear uh, friend Doc, uh, Senator Sanders, when the reality is is that politics of identity have always been at the heart of American identity. They just didn't get named. And they didn't get named because they were universal. And they were universal because they were invisible. And they were invisible because they were white. And the whiteness never got expressed as particular identity because it was never a burden that white brothers and sister, sisters had to carry. So, of course, white brothers and sisters don't think about themselves as white often because men don't think about themselves as, as gendered. Right? You tell a man, well, what about gender? Yeah, the women, you know, we got to look. Let me see. Are you missing your masculinity? Are you missing, missing your often toxic masculinity? Are we missing the way in which our masculine identity carries force and weight and fact and, 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 and real consequence and imposes trauma? And the degree to which we are incapable of acknowledging our own masculinity and how it operates and the privileges of male supremacy that are unconscious to us? That women walking from their house to their car have to think about the possibility of predatory behavior? Right? In ways that men never do. That women can be grabbed in their orifices. Right? Now, I got to put a pin right here. Why my man Trump and others got to blame hip-hop when they were trying to justify grabbing? That, that's not no hip-hop term. Sorry, don't blame hip-hop for that. The reality is this. The reality is this, that whiteness has been invented and invented for a purpose. And history has been made white and invisible. And history has been made American and American has been made white. And anything black or brown or red or yellow stands against it is uncomfortable. And what I'm asking white brothers and sisters to do is to renounce whiteness in favor of a deeper, more profound humanity that can be accessed. We have to underscore the magnificent effort of those liberal intentions in light of what we're confronting right now. This Trumpian world in which we exist of alternative facts, like the starters might not be available so the bench warmers have to step in of facticity. I am the backup fact. Uh, <laughs> <clears throat> haven't played for a while, but you know. So, in this era where there is such naked and boldly defiant resistance and intransigence and recalcitrance and every other big term we can use to really conjure just how horrifying what we are all collectively facing is, we celebrate and acknowledge the legitimate effort of people of conscience and goodwill to do the right thing. You know, there is a sense in which Dr. King said, charity is never a suitable basis for the distribution of resources, especially justice, because you can get tired of giving. Even compassion, which is critical, empathy, which is necessary, cannot be the predicate for the distribution of that good because you might get exhausted or disinclined or change your mind. But if it's real and right, it should be true. And it should be done. It is a difficult thing to say to white brothers and sisters who are on the right road, dig deeper. Right? I'm a man. I consider myself a feminist, but we know how that works. We know, despite my good intentions, what limitations there are. Try my best to overcome my male supremacy, my implicit bias against another gender of many, of trying to negotiate the politics of, of my own masculine vision and patriarchal prerogative and misogyny or even femophobia, just the fear of women. And 
trying to acknowledge the degree to which I am complicit in the very structure of oppression that I call into account and benefit from it, even as I lambast it? And to what degree am I willing to unseat that authority and unhinge the doors upon which that privilege that I enjoy swings? That, that's, that's tough. Black and brown people and other people of color who have been victims of vicious terror and tyrannical racism in our institutions like church using the same biblical justification that was used against us for race and beating down on gay and lesbian and transgendered and bisexual people and queer folk is, is, is tough. Because we're going to turn around and do the same thing that was done to us. The oppressed become the oppressor. So trust me, I understand, white brothers and sisters, how tough it is. But it's got to be done. We've got to call ourselves to account. We've got to say to even good, dyed-in-the-wool white liberals that sometimes enlightened liberal engagement may protect brothers and sisters from grappling with the true dimensions of transformation. For instance, you know, it was easier for wealthier whites who lived in the suburbs to talk about the necessity of busing for white working class people because they kids, not there, they kids wasn't, not weren't, going to get bussed. You talking about, oh, let, let, let those kids, yes, that's a good principle, while your kid's in private school. Hardly integrated. So now the people who have to deal with the front line, the real bigotry that was revealed, and trust me, the bigotry was real, but, but if you're richer and whiter in suburban America, your bigotry doesn't have to manifest itself because it doesn't get put on full display or get challenged. So now... We look askance at the people there and call them bigots. Oh, yes, those working class bigots and they're horrible. While we take consolation, we would never believe that. You haven't been challenged at the level at which you could obviously be, be tempted into similar displays of, of nastiness. And so water finds its own level and... And the ability to inure, the ability to keep yourself protected, shielded from your own knowledge of your own inclination to be tested or challenged is something we have to acknowledge. So I think that even liberal white brothers and sisters have to ask the question about innocence and protection and safety and not speaking up or not being inclined to speak up which is why we need white brothers and sisters to do so. Like when you go to Thanksgiving meals and you're a check-writing supporter of Black Lives Matter, but granny is talking about niggas. Not niggas, niggers. And you're going, Jiminy Cricket, what are we going to do? <laughs> Hallelujah. Let me watch the Detroit Lions lose again and the Seahawks perhaps prevail. And you, you got to challenge Granny, not before the turkey is cut, <laughs> not before the stuffing is consumed or the macaroni and cheese and the sweet potato pie. Oh, I'm sorry, uh, the pumpkin pie. <laughs> sweet potato pie in the hood. So, <clears throat> but then softly, and gently and compassionately, you got to confront that. Granny, you know, all people are not like that, and you're making these statements, and a lot of people who behave in that way that are kinfolk of ours, right? I mean, for instance, I don't want to hear no white brothers and sisters tell me for the next four years about affirmative action. I mean, and affirmative action ain't what people make it out to be. It's a noble concept. But the way that a lot of white people twist it to be, what you're looking at at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue right now, <laughs> arguably, potentially the greatest 
most incomprehensibly incompetent presidency ever. Whiteness, even in liberal versions, created certain of the agonistic and antagonistic and monstrous manifestations of whiteness out of control on steroids, pieced together like Frankenstein's monster was from discarded portions of our psyche and our collective unconscious and whiteness helped structure that. So the real creator of it, all of those times when we ignored the necessity of dealing with our polite racism or our looking the other way while we know people in the street were being hammered, killed by police people unjustly, and we went home to our nice houses and never raised our voices. And in that sense, we have been complicit in that. Many more of us, of course, than are willing to admit it, including white brothers and sisters and including white liberal brothers and sisters. So charity is important. But if you want to reach out and help kids who are black with scholarships or buy computers or buy books, that stuff is important. But it's not a substitute for justice because justice is giving people their due and making certain that regardless of the fact that they don't look like us, that they deserve the same protection we have. So that when a police car rolls up on a 12-year-old child, I cannot tell you the pain and the hurt to see a 12-year-old boy shot down two seconds after that cop car arrives. And if you can feel comfortable enough to remain silent in the face of that genocidal impulse, if you can find justification, well, he looked older than and he was, none of which are applied when it comes, or usually not, to white brothers and sisters. I was before a famous local Washington, D.C. eatery not long ago, 4.30 in the morning, and having engaged in a bit of ethnographic study of the bacchanal and dissolution of youthful existence <laughs> by inhabiting their partying spaces only for research. <laughs> and then in front of Ben's Chili Bowl, a young white boy was accosting the police. And I said, oh my God, they're going to kill him. And then I said, no, they won't young white kid and the following words were heard now son you're clearly inebriated you need to go home that's all we want is the presumption of humanity that preserves that that preserves the integrity of the police and protects the citizenry without undue investment in unconscious stereotype or profiling that makes us believe that this person is there to harm us merely by breathing, even when we obey what the police tell us to do we are often harmed. So even liberal charity cannot undercut inaction in the face of manifest malevolence. And even if our children, our white children, are not subject to this to the same degree, then we feel that 
it's not really my problem. It really is. It's our problem. So I was on television debating Rudy Giuliani. And <clears throat> I was not as calm as I am now. <laughs> Context determines content delivery. And so we're talking about police brutality. And he says what we should be talking about. This is right before the delivery of the verdict or whether, of whether or not there would be uh, charges brought in the case of Michael Brown. And Giuliani said, that's a small percentage. 93% of black people who are killed are killed by black people. Now, now that's true. What he didn't say is that 84% of white people who are killed are killed by white people. There ain't no white-on-white crime parlance. There's no discourse or rhetoric that demonizes and stigmatizes white people. And more white people commit violent crime than anybody else in America. And so, but let's, let's take it a step further. By that logic that only a small percentage of black people who die are killed at the hands of the police and the masses of black people die at the hands of other black people, how many folk have died since 9-11 of terror? Maybe a hundred? So why are we so obsessed with color schemes and airports and national resources and killing people in foreign lands when only a hundred people have died? It's not Muhammad, it's Billy Bob that has killed far more. White people. Now, I can feel your blood pressure rising even in the analogy, even in the example. How dare you dishonor the incredible sacrament of life that was surrendered in 9-11 and the, the gesture of the subversion of American democracy by outside forces. But I'm saying if it's true for us in terms of the numbers, it's got to be true for y'all, us, this culture, in terms of terror by the numbers of people, if that's the only consideration, but of course it isn't. And so I'm saying that, that white innocence and beautiful liberal investment in interrogating your own privilege has got to be deepened and asking questions about innocence and the degree to which we, you as white people, have not been encouraged to think about your whiteness, forced to come to grips with it, and ask the question what you will do in the face of the knowledge you possess to try to challenge an unjust system. So do you tweet out or Facebook or whatever social media platform you have when you see young people of color being disproportionately warehoused in prison for stuff that your kids got away with that you got away with? So I'm asking white liberal brothers and sisters not simply to be charitable, though still be charitable, <laughs> right? Somebody asked me, the Koch brothers gave 25 million to the United Negro College Fund, right? Is that justice? No, but don't get the dough back. <laughs> Thank you, Coke. What up? <laughs> I'm going to use that money to raise another generation of black people who can undermine your legitimacy. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you. Huh? <clears throat> See? As much as I love her, that famous saying of Audre Lorde, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. Only the master's tools can dismantle the master's house in the hands of practitioners who know what they're doing. Take that tool and dismantle, demythologize, take the eloquence of the language, take the polysyllabic construction, take the noun and the adjective and the gerund and the dangling participle and craft them into words that explode the mythologies and reveal the inherent inaccuracy of what is being done. Yes, the master's tools must be used to dismantle the master's house. And so for me, I think that, that we want to ask more of white brothers and sisters because you got more. I'm sorry, I'm an old Baptist preacher. To whom much is given, much is required. 
So if you balling, as opposed to balling on a budget, <laughs> it do be a difference. Because <laughs> the folk who got it, you'll never know it. And the folk who think they got it, try to show it. Oh, man. Bill Gates don't dress like no Dapper Dan. But he paid. Right? That's uh, zero copula of African-American vernacular crossing out that we get right to the matter. Not he is paid. He paid. <laughs> You're listening to Michael Eric Dyson, White Privilege. This is Independent Alternative Radio. You can order copies of this program by calling... 1-800-444-1977. We're offering you, our listeners, written transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s free of charge. Just call us at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that number is 1-800-444-1977. Our website, alternativeradio.org. So to whom much is given, much is required. And we ask you to dig deeper. Don't get mad and nasty and angry and resentful. Get reflective and introspective and ask yourself what more you might be able to do. Because let's be honest, this society is built upon the unacknowledged labor of so many people, especially people of color, land and body, red, black and brown. And we have to acknowledge that debt and then figure out a way to not only pay it, but also to compensate those who may have been direct victims, but even more broadly, in a broader, a broader philosophical argument, to understand that we, we owe our existence to forces beyond us, and we must forever acknowledge our debt to them, but also find out a way to justify our existence in this present moment. That's all of us, but including our white brothers and sisters who may be liberal as well. But we do have a new president. If you were in front of my student body today, mm -hmm. what would you tell them? You know, let me read you what a great preacher, mystic, named Howard Thurman wrote. He said, at the time when the slaves in America were without any excuse for hope and they could see nothing before them but the long interminable cotton rows and the fierce sun and the lash of the overseer, what did they do? They declared that God was not through. They said, we cannot be prisoners of this event. We must not scale down the horizon of our hopes and our dreams and our yearnings to the level of the event of our lives. So they lived through their tragic moment until at last they came out on the other side, saluting the fulfillment of their hopes and their faith. And this is what I say. Beloved, if the enslaved could nurture on the vine of their desperate deficiency of democracy, the spiritual and moral fruit that fed our civilization, then surely we can name and resist demagoguery. We can protest. I was there in Los Angeles with the women's. I don't want to essentialize gender, but women are better than men. <clears throat> I wish I could be more complicated about it, but there it is. We can protest and somehow defeat the forces that threaten the soul of our nation. To not try to give up on the possibility that we can make a difference, can make the difference, is to give up on our past, on our complicated, difficult, but victorious past. Donald Trump is not our final or ultimate problem. The problem is instead allowing hopelessness to steal our joyful triumph before we work hard enough to achieve it. So now what we must do, I would tell young people, study a lesson, as my daddy used to tell me, even more so now. This is not the time to give up, this is the time to go in. 
to dig deeper into our history. Know what the Constitution is, because these people really just don't. They just be making shit up. I'm just saying. So study the foundational documents of this country, the, the secular scripture that constitutes our nation's civic religion of democracy. Study that even more and understand, number two, the game is chess, not checkers. You can't stop what Donald Trump is doing now, but there's a midterm election coming up in two years. And we got to take a lesson from the Tea Party. Don't be mad. They, they, they got what they wanted. Now it's going to burn us all up. But take a lesson in terms of lying in wait and understanding strategic down-ballot voting, making senators and congresspeople vulnerable as a result of the pressure, and understanding that we have the power to deny Donald Trump the House or the Senate so that he can't just have all three, the presidency and the House and Senate, and do the kind of crazy stuff that he wants to do. Because even fellow Republicans are looking at him going, my God, look at the interview or listen to it, or look at the transcript at the CIA the other day. This is madness. This, my brothers and sisters, is the projection of this infantile aggression that is so much more dangerous because his, his hands metaphorically are, are, are on the button. And, and, and except he ain't going to blow them up, he's going to show up with them. Because imagine a person of color or a woman being in bed with Putin the way this man is. He would have been read out, right? You got a problem with Snowden? And your president is beseeching Russia to hack Hillary Clinton. But the greatest hacking wasn't from Putin. It was from those 900 machines that were disabled or closed down as a result of voter ID laws. So like white innocents with white liberals, we as Americans would rather focus on Putin then focus on what we did in this country to deny legitimate citizens the right to vote. It was far worse. And so I would tell those young folk what my pastor told me. We have already come through what we have come to. We done been here before. If, 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 if Thurman said we have been through the long rawhide whip of the overseer, we have been through lynching where, where the invidious denunciation of life and the humiliation of even the, the pretense to humanity existed where white brothers and sisters lynched and strung people of color high from trees and swung them into their ultimate reward at the end of a rope then snap pictures of it, postcards at picnics to reveal the pathology of the white imagination, a kind of Twitter posting, a kind of social dys dyslexia, getting it morally backwards. And so, and so, yes, we must say to them, we have endured that. We can endure a Donald Trump. We can withstand it, but we've got to call upon those resources of the past and we got to get beyond some of our own bigotry from within, no matter who we are. Howard Thurman said a bigot is a person who makes an idol of his or her commitments. So you fetishize your particular understanding as if that's the only way. We in the boat together now. We got to work together. And why I said women are better than men, I said that because, besides it being true, what I said that for is because there were tremendous differences in this march. You know, pro-lifers, people with choice, women of color who are, you know, been working saying, where y'all been? Y'all just getting on board. Black Lives Matter and, and y'all ain't done nothing. But then there are white women who finally got the, you know, message 
Or, you know, because 54% of the women who voted were what? Voting for Trump. What up with that? Got to hold them to account. Come on now. Come on, white women's. Get on board here because Trump ain't going to help you. He trying to grab it. He can't help you deliver it. In ter- some old white men in the Senate trying to tell women what to do with their bodies. You don't even know what a body is, dude. Because you're half a cadaver standing up speaking. But we have to say, but better late than never. Come on board. Let's get together. Because all of us got narrowness and blindness. And all of us you know, got stuff we can't see. And me even saying blindness as opposed to different forms of sight. So other able people who are being excluded from the conversation, even as I'm trying to include others, we all do it. So we have to be not only conscious of it, but we have to move beyond those narrow parameters and find ways to forge links and connections so that we can defeat what this thing is. It's deeper than a presidency, a deeply incompetent, incomprehensible, proud to be unmolested by enlightenment. (laughs) I don't know and I'm glad I don't. So what we have to do to tell young people is stay in school, study, because otherwise this is your brain on politics. And then ultimately, we must say to them, the fight is never over as long as we exist in order to fight. And we can resist and we can together join forces to make new allies in ways that we hadn't before. Back against the wall, head looking up, swinging against the odds, because there will come a time when the tide will turn and the The pendulum will swing and we have to be in place to effectively receive it and push it. In order to do that, we got to play chess and chess is, and excuse me, all of these leftists who are going around the country telling people ain't no difference. Let's not make that damn mistake again. We ain't electing a messiah. We're electing a president. And we need to strategically be thinking right now about how we position ourselves, but not reduce the complexity of politics to electoral politics. Grassroots organizing on the local level. So if we could join together and move beyond the precincts of privilege that are falsely conferred, then we could see the unification of the masses of people of color and white brothers and sisters. The investment personally It's so important, and many white brothers and sisters are doing it. I want to continue to encourage them to keep on doing it, even as they add that arsenal. It's like Kobe Bryant. Every year he came back, he had something different to offer, right? Every year you come back, you're great, but you add another piece. Oh, I got a jump shot now. Oh, I got a fadeaway now. Oh, I got more defense now. So white brothers and sisters who are liberals, keep adding to your arsenal. You're empathetic. Deconstruct innocence. Deconstruct privilege. Begin to think structure even as you commit yourselves to the great work that you're already doing. But thank you so much for that. Oh, wow. In regards to Black Lives Matter, Mm -hmm. I am a check-writing member. Mm -hmm. However, very frustrated in the seemingly lack of strategy that the movement has. And I'm fearful that it will fall off the wayside Mm -hmm. like Occupy did Mm -hmm. because of this fierceness towards protesting as the number one facet in their strategy to drive resistance. First of all, I think you're absolutely right. And and I think many people in Black Lives Matter understood that. They released an incredible document. Uh, Black Lives Matter actually has a number of thinkers and activists and strategists who are doing just what you're speaking about. You know, parlaying the moment into a movement and thinking critically and self-critically about what it means to be black and to join forces with others to generate a serious document. So I think that's absolutely right. What do you say to the the contention that the number one challenge facing our country and the planet is to close the widening gap between workers who are sowing record corporate profits and those greedy, green-eye-shade, fat-cat overpaid CEOs that are reaping them? Take uh, the Walton family of Walmart infamy, 
They're worth $149 billion, as much as the poorest 40% of Americans combined, mm -hmm. while they pay their poor checkers $9.50 an hour. Right. And number two, Paul Ryan and the rest of his ilk don't believe in a social safety net. Paul Ryan has called for abolishing the food stamp program, abolishing Pell Grants, abolishing low-income heating assistance program. They don't believe, they really believe in a trickle-down survival of the fittest. And finally, which do you like better for GOP, grand obstructionist party or guardians of privilege? <laughs> I'll let Thank that you. stand. Amen. Amen. I mean, there it is, bro. Yes, sir. Mm. I suspect that I'm one of many uh, somewhat privileged white people who are ready, wanting to get engaged in mm -hmm. ways that we haven't before. This is going to sound a little silly and pathetic um, because there are lots of things that we've done in life that we've succeeded at. Mm -hmm. But um, we don't really know how to get connected locally to different people, right, to different groups, and that's what we need. Right. So um, my uh, request is help us do that. Um, mm -hmm. But my question is, what are a couple of things that you would say to get started? And, and I think it's actual relationships. I mean, we need to get in a room with people who are That's doing right. this stuff so we can join. Right. Not go to websites and yeah. phone calls. No, amen to that. That's a great point. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. And thank you. It's not a stupid question at all. It's a very practical question. And we're trying to figure out how do we get connected. Uh, although, what's interesting enough... You know, you can find groups that are organized anti-racists, white anti-racists on the Internet. Because if you can get radicalized in the wrong direction, you can get inculcated in the good one as well. But, but, but I believe in that face-to-face kind of engagement. And there are many, you know, there are many local white people doing the right kind of thing here who could answer far better than I can in terms of specific organizations. But I talk about education. It's so important. Because so much of the dialogue in America is horrible because people don't read and they don't, they don't know history. So they keep talking about stuff. You know, I get all these mad letters from these white folk who are calling me nigger and, and writing me emails, nigger. I get 10 a day and stuff. And, I, you know, I'm just, I got a standard reply. Could you at least call me Professor Nigger? I, I just, I know you ain't going to stop calling me nigger, but can you call me Dr. Nigger? I worked hard at Princeton for this, man. I, and, and one of the things they're mad at is, they, they, and they tell me, my people died in the Civil War for you, so that's you owe me reparations. Bruh. Bruh, do you do your little study? Do your little history? Yeah, they tried to rewrite it, and they tried to say that it was about states' rights and stuff. Which one is it? If it's about states' rights, and it's about the right of America to what? States' rights to what? To own slaves. Right. So then if we could do some studying, we could at least have a baseline. And that's why I'm scared for this new administration. They have made ignorance sexy and alternate facts and alternative. Re I mean, Lord, have mercy. So what's interesting is that if we can get white brothers and sisters to educate themselves, other white people like Tim Wise, Mab Segrist, Peggy McIntosh, Theodore Allen, Dave Rodeker, they've written about this, right? So educate yourself and then participate. Participate by going to rallies of Black Lives Matter or other organizations, participating in native uh, meetings where people are talking about the right of indigenous people here in America and what that might mean for education. In other words, educating yourselves is one thing and then participating in organizations. And there are ways in which the NAACP, the Urban League, the National Action Network, grassroots organizations could use some white allies and some white members. And then finally, um, there are groups of white brothers and sisters who are actually organized to think strategically about how they can best deploy their resources. Why is it so taboo to critique and question our economic system? Why don't we have the right to question and critique it to a point that it may make people uncomfortable mm -hmm. because they're benefiting from it, including right. myself? No, no, no. It's a, it's a great point. You know, I was on a panel with another great law professor, Derek Bell, and he told the story. He said the communists came to, to Harlem to recruit the Negro. And they were talking about the revolution and economic inequality and social injustice and 
how that might be eradicated by the presence of this particular document and these particular ideas. And he said, a black man raised his hand and said, can I, can I ask you a question? He said, after the revolution comes, are you still going to be white? <laughs> Think about Orlando Patterson's book about freedom, that freedom wouldn't even exist in the Western empire, Western civilization, without a corollary contradiction of darkness, blackness, and the slave body as the expression of the denunciation of that freedom. And therefore, that freedom became even more powerfully articulated. So you're absolutely, I would say you're absolutely right in terms of property rights, even though I think that blackness does call whiteness into, a, uh, into existence and to account, even as whiteness calls blackness into being as well. So that, so that there's a way in which there's a reciprocity and mutuality of invention, though not in terms of equally weighted consequence of those inventions, and that I would never subsume race under class. Because the subsumption of race under class mitigates against the reality that there are some particular animuses that are driven regardless of economic status or reorganization of the logic of capital. For instance, when many white brothers and sisters say, look, why should you, as a rich law professor, or, right, you say you're at least a law professor. <laughs> Right? They tell me, you're as a rich Georgetown professor. Why should my kids get anything less than you? In fact, should get more because they suffer. Now, under the economic argument, that's absolutely true. On a pure economic consideration, the maldistribution of wealth is predicated upon a pure calculus that determines the relative impact of that economic denial. So that becomes the predicate for redistribution. That's great. But what that got to do with the race that occurred? Jackie Robinson's kids didn't get an exemption from white water fountains or from Jim Crow. Du Bois said, in Black Reconstruction and others, the psychic wages of whiteness, the compensatory racial order is predicated upon, at least I ain't a nigga. So I say it's especially about race when the dominant overlord, captains of industry who are white, exploit working class white people by giving them what bonus? Yes, we're going to deny you economic opportunity, but at least you ain't a nigger. No, you will not be able to come to our schools, but at least you're not a nigger. That is not going to be resolved by economic parity. That will be resolved by acknowledging the centrality of racial difference and the animus of blackness or brown or red or yellow and the degree to which we got to fight that simultaneously. That's why I said, and let me be more explicit, Bernie Sanders is the left-wing version of Donald Trump, not in terms of ideology, not in terms of understanding, but you got two elderly white men who are unfamiliar with and disconcerted by race. Now, that's a big difference. I'd rather have Bernie Sanders there. Hoy vey, my man. Let's get down with Bernie. I'm going to ride till the wheels fall off. But there was the same liberal intolerance of racial difference when Black Lives Matter pushed him because he felt he had already achieved what they talked about because he said it's about class. No, sir, it's also about race and God knows about gender as well. And when we put those together, I think it operates. So you and I, I think, would be on the same page in that. All right. Thank you, sir. So let me very quickly. Yes, multifaceted mosaic. That's so powerful. Privilege of whiteness. White men more privileged than white women. White women more privileged than people or women of color. We have to acknowledge that. And when we do that, we pay attention to how our own oppression also generates privilege. I tried to say that earlier with black people, and I think it's important. Uh, capitalism and racism. White fragility hurts white people too. Amen, 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 amen. It undermines the authority and integrity of the spirit and soul. And then finally, other, calling yourself something other than white. Amen. So let's generate that so that everybody can be able to deconstruct what that whiteness might mean and then rename it in a renaming ceremony that will make this nation a better place. Thank you all so very much. All right. That was Michael Eric Dyson on white privilege. He spoke in Seattle in 2017. Michael Eric Dyson is university professor at Georgetown. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado, 
We are independent and part of the nonprofit media education organization, Rise Up. We feature progressive voices rarely heard in the media, such as Kianga Yamata-Taylor, Angela Davis, Richard Wolfe, Bill McKibben, and Chris Hedges. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To place a credit card order for CDs of today's program, Michael Eric Dyson on White Privilege, call us at 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. We're making written transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s available to you, our listeners, free of charge. Just give us a call, 1-800-444-1977. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. We go out with Jay-Z's 99 Problems Instrumental. Just go to the website, alternativeradio.org, alternativeradio.org. We, too, are independent and are supported solely by listeners who make donations, uh, purchase transcripts, MP3s, or CDs of our programs. So we're very much uh, dependent on listeners out there. Summers in Rio and can be real scorchers, so I cover up a sunscreen. Before I go out, I sit my sunscreen down by a radio locked to CJSW, 90.9 FM Calgary. It goes from SPF 15 to SPF radio. I'm gonna put some on right now. Yeah, you can really feel the radio. CJSW, 90.9 FM, radio you can feel. Habitual, bet you all wish you could know my secrets. Deep as the sea, like a bird, I'm free. Expansive, infinite, generous. Elevated etiquette. Reprogram everything you ever learned, everything you ever heard. Reprogram every day you irked, everything that made you hurt. Reprogram everything you ever learned, everything you ever heard. 
Reprogram every day you ever worked, everything that made you hurt. It's time to heal from everything that tore into the seams of your fabric. Everything, send me go. 